they know the tool, they've been sold on the idea, but there's the gap between the tool that they want and where they want to be and where they're starting. So a lot of what my role is is coming in and saying, okay, how can we help you bridge the skill gap? What things do we want to skill up on? How can we get from managing our monolith apps on virtual machines to like a Kubernetes platform? And part of it is redirecting, how do we monitor the systems to how do we actually know what our applications are doing? Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. Especially from my position with OllieFest or with DevOps Days Boston recently, it's been from the production booth. I've been running all the actual video production side of it. So very much I have had like, it's very dashboardy <laughs> because everything is live and it matters in the moment. So I've got like the live stream going and I've got like other chats going and I've got like the actual windows that I'm managing. So it's definitely sort of in that realm of like, if you're actively monitoring incidents and you're trying to watch like, okay, I can't just know everything that's happening. So I've got to have all these things up to try and monitor like what's going on and all right, what are my changes affecting? How is that coming through in the actual live feed by the time it gets to production versus like what my changes are? So there's a lot of that balancing the signals on all side of it, right? From one side to the other side of the uh, the broadcast is sort of the same as like similar to that, like above the line, below the line, right? Like everything I'm doing up here, how's that affecting everything else? Yeah, it's super interesting to see that phenomenon of cognitive overload of having way too many dashboards, but feeling like you have to have all those dashboards to see what's going on. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You sort of find the balance of like, okay, what do I need right now? What can I background, right? Like, okay, I can throw that off to the side. Like, I'll be, I need it quick if I need to glance at it, but I don't need it up in front of me. You know, what things do I just need to alert, right? Do you find that conferences tend to fail in a lot of predictable ways, or do they fail in lots of novel and unique ways that you need to debug in like crazy different ways? I think it's got a little bit of a balance, if only because there's so many... And it depends on if everything's live or if things are pre-recorded, right? Like, so all of that comes with different, uh, different groups of it. There's almost always some measure of computer hardware internet connection failure from some guest or host that you're managing sure. that like is almost guaranteed to be a predictable failure that you're watching out for. But yeah, everything else is always new and unique. Like I had never had where at AliFest, for instance, we were using OBS Ninja. So all of the video feeds, rather than being some sort of video input, are technically browser windows. And uh, it just decided it didn't want to do browsing anymore. So it's like, oh, I've lost all the video feeds. Uh, everybody stand by. <laughs> Which was like, okay, this is brand new. This reminds me, you know, sometimes you get some like playbooks from organizers who you can tell have been through the trenches at conference after conference. Yeah, yeah. Because they're like fucking 15 pages long. And they're like, <laughs> do this, 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 try this, 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 be there, there, there. And it's, at some point you're just like, oh, honey, like I get that you have scar tissue, but you can't inflict that on all of us. Like nobody's going <laughs> to read your 15 page document and nobody's going to remember it or internalize it if they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's uh, I think that's sort of the key, right? And that's sort of with any incident management or observability too. There's sort of the key, like here are the main things to watch out for, yeah. but like, Everything else, you either have to mitigate or break the chaos. We're going to deal with it. Here are the people that know the information you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> so now would be a good time for you to introduce yourself. 
Yeah, awesome. So uh, I'm Aaron Aldrich. I am a managed OpenShift black belt at Red Hat. I started DevOps Days Hartford in Connecticut, and I also have organized with DevOps Days Boston and New York City and OliFest just recently. So Managed OpenShift black belt. Yeah. What does that mean? It's one of those great customer-facing titles, which is uh, ah. we stole the like black belt concept from Microsoft. They have like their global black belt teams. Uh-huh. Uh, but we focus mainly on the managed OpenShift products, so kind of the, the platform as a service as opposed to the self-run open source end of it. And it's very customer success focused. So it's kind of like DevRel, but very targeted to like, we would like you to DevRel at this company, please. Mm. So it's kind of this transition of how do we apply all of these DevOps skills to clients and how do we make sure that they stay successful? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced that, right? Where a client, they know the tool and they've been sold on the idea, but there's the gap between the tool that they want and where they want to be and where they're starting. So a lot of what my role is, is coming in and saying, okay, how can we help you bridge the skill gap? You know, help you look at like, where should we be looking for skills? What things do we want to skill up on? How can we get from managing our monolith apps on virtual machines to like a Kubernetes platform? (laughs) And even is the Kubernetes platform the right thing to do, right? right? Like what are the design goals? What are we trying to do here? Where should we start? Right. Not, let's not peanut butter Kubernetes over everything, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and part of that is trying to find out. I tend to be targeted big groups where almost always there's some project that will fit that mold. And so some of it's trying to find that out. Like, what is a good project? I, I just had the best idea for a candy bar, Kubernetes. Like a peanut butter bar, oh. Kubernetes goes with everything. So what are the sorts of challenges that you see people having? Like, where are those skill gaps? There's a couple things. Some of it is, <laughs> a lot of it is figuring out because we are in managed, there's a lot of uh, drawing the line of what does it mean to have the platform managed and what things what things do I no longer have to worry about if it's a hosted platform, right? Mm. And so there's a lot of questions like, well, how do we do X? I'm like, well, you just don't have to do that. Like, that's why you're paying more for it because <laughs> you just don't have to do that anymore. And how does this like circle back to observability? Like what, how does that help you? Because you used to be an observability practitioner for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. Say more about that. <laughs> yeah, let me let me. I'm trying to figure out where all my lines will will draw here. Yeah, I think there's a couple things that, that get into it, and and part of it is redirecting a lot of old practice of how do we monitor the systems to how do we actually know what our applications are doing, mm-hmm. right? And especially coming from, I mean, we're Red Hat customers, right? So they're Red Hat folks. They get infrastructure. That's where they're focused. They want to monitor their systems. Like, right. well, what happens if our nodes X, Y, and Z? I'm like, well, you don't monitor that anymore. Like, that's something we're going to handle. Like, now you need to focus on your application and how that builds and what's happening with your customers and making sure all that's working out for you. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of that shift of mentality to, yeah, you don't need to worry about the disk availability. You don't need to worry about all of these underlying... No more CPU load averages, ever. Right. <laughs> right. That's that's what your auto-balancer was for. Like That's why we set this up, so that you won't have to think about it. It'll just magically get better. And if it won't, like that's, that's why we have these background alert systems that our teams are paying attention to and the actual platform is handling, right? So what do they have to pay attention to? So that's uh, that's the great question. So everything is everything built on top of it, right? So they're going to care about, you know, what are my actual pods doing, right? Like the actual applications, how are they performing? Anything you want to look at observability, how are our customers handling that? What are the success criteria for our application? And are we able to meet those, those goals? And are we able to follow through with that? Um, and I think that's a lot of learning, especially for big enterprise groups that are not necessarily used to having the... A lot of apps are internal, like especially most big groups like that, where they'll have... You know, there's some of the customer facing stuff 
but there's maybe a hundred internal applications that are being run on these platforms that no one ever hears about unless you work in a certain department or unless you work inside the company. And I think there's a big shift of understanding like these are customers of that product. And so trying to apply the same mentality of like, you shouldn't be finding out that you've got, you know, low database throughput because you're getting a call from finance saying they can't run their calculations for the quarter, right? Like that would be a bad way to find out that your application is underperforming. Yeah, and it's that shift of mindset as well towards having faster feedback cycles where people are definitely used to throwing stuff over the wall rather than being responsible if it breaks. And I think that also can be a challenge. That is a lot too. I'm finding that a lot of it is, uh, I think I've said this before, like any successful transformation is like a non-zero portion of, of therapy for the company. And I'm finding a lot of fractured groups like that, right? Where I'm talking to the app dev group about how are we going to move this application to a new uh, OpenShift platform? And it turns out like, oh, but we. Um, then I'm talking to the platform team who manages their container as a service at that company and it's, or the DevOps team that's doing all these containers and platform stuff. And there's still that disconnect between the actual applications being operated on the platform and the team that's operating the underlying infrastructure and how it's being managed and what's being monitored. Right. It's this thing where these people should be talking to each other, should be teaching each other things, and yet the data is just siloed. Yeah, exactly. It's still getting into those silos. And, and sometimes it's really hard to break that down, right? There's so many internal company politics uh, that I think you get really exposed to, especially in that in that customer success and, and sales facing role, because so much of that has to be navigated just to get to the end of the conversation and figure out where the blockers are. You'll have one conversation one day with, say, the platform or, or container team, and they're like, yeah, this sounds great. Everything's wonderful. And then suddenly you talk to the app team the next day who also needs to buy into it, and it's like, oh no, we've always had problems with this. And you're like, wait, what? How did, how did this not come up? How does no one tell me that there are problems with this so far? So what are the steps then you, that you take people through, right? Like what do you have people start measuring? How do you have people start instrumenting? So sometimes starting is really just having these conversations and finding out what the problem points they're having. So if it's like app dev has been struggling even you know, moving their applications over to a containerized structure, like it can get really down into the like, does this even make sense or or what is even working with it? So it's it's really weird. Um, and we haven't done a ton of it because we've been a, a fairly new team for Red Hat as well. The move towards managed OpenShift platform from something that people are operating themselves is, is pretty new. So there haven't been a ton of like cases I can give as a good example, but... How has the experience been kind of moving from a observability vendor to a kind of company that is providing services to these larger enterprises? Yeah, that's actually been a, a really interesting shift. A lot more of what I did before was so focused on the instrumentation and like, how do I get data out of my applications? And now switching this platform has been a really interesting move for me of just having to brush up on a lot of skills that uh, sort of atrophy a bit when DevRel for a very specific role and, and moving somewhere else. So I think that that goes to, we, we mentioned a little bit earlier, like the pendulum between DevRel and engineering and it sort of swung back to the to middle for me, where before it was like, I just needed to throw some application up somewhere. I can, as long as I can create some sort of uh, manifest, I can throw it wherever and, and throw uh, elastic on it and pull data in. And as a colleague of mine said, you know, highly instrumented hello worlds and <laughs> show up places. And now it's a lot more of like, oh, right, I have to start caring about how do I set this platform up again? How do I actually get my applications running? And how do I tune? <laughs> right, because you're a lot more living with the consequences of your decisions rather than kind of showing a demo app that is not running a actual production workload. Yeah, exactly. So it's a lot more of like, oh, I'm building a lot more pipelines, a lot more of... Uh, 
yeah, all of that infrastructure that actually we want to care about how it's operating as opposed to like, yeah, I can run it on Minikube and it'll be fine and it'll do what it needs to do and give me something. Now it's like, oh yeah, okay. One of the weirdest bits at the beginning was just getting access to everything I, I needed because it's with Elastic, it was like, I can run it locally, I can run it somewhere else, I can run it in their their cloud product and it's fine. And suddenly I'm like, oh, I need to set up like whole clusters. Like I can't just spend a little bit and expense that because there's no cheap way for me to stand up an enterprise, <laughs> like even a small cluster for a, a proof of concept. Like I need a number of machines that need to get spun up on EC2. I need a number of underlying services and accounts that get spun up. So yeah, there was a lot more brushing up on like how everything fits together rather than just focusing on this one observability product. It's been kind of interesting seeing how observability fits into that too, right? Of having that mindset of not only do I want to get this this app up and running, but how do I then make it look like something operational? It's been funny going from, it's sort of the opposite of like these very basic apps that kind of run wherever that are highly instrumented, getting all sorts of telemetry data out of it. And now I'm like, okay, I have this really robust infrastructure running a kind of basic app and, oh, look, I can throw some telemetry out and I'm getting some data out of it. Cool. That's going to be good enough for people to figure out where the, uh, the differences are from there. And it's been really interesting having everything from a management perspective, like with a managed platform, we don't want to do a ton of stuff that's one-off and like, okay, here's how you hand build it all. Like, well, I want a lot more that's, here's the operator that you run and install and here are the parameters that you change uh, in order to get it running. So, And also I imagine debugging multi-tenancy is always a fun and exciting thing. Yeah, always fun and exciting, especially with the way the accounts are split in such ways. It's it's. I've learned a lot more about cloud operator partnerships has been like a whole thing. How do you debug that with your tooling? The uh, the multi-tenancy with it isn't as overlapping as it could be because so much is separated by cloud accounts. So our issue is mainly bringing everything back in to the back end of it so that we get all the visibility we need into customer accounts. So you don't have problems where like one customer is spiking or ballooning, you know, doing right loads, it bleeds out and affects a whole bunch of other customers. And, and then you have to figure out like, cause they're all getting slow at the same time and you have to figure out which one initiated it and that sort of thing. No, cause it's, um, so especially with the managed platform, it's all being run inside of it's through partnerships with, uh, especially Microsoft on Azure and on AWS. So all the tenancy is happening at, uh, the cloud provider. So if anything's happening there, it ends up getting offloaded to the cloud provider dealing with anything that would be happening. And it would be underlying like EC2 instances. So it's pretty rare that we're running into issues with it. Okay. More of our issue is how do we allow a centralized SRE team at Red Hat look at all of these accounts across Azure and AWS and IBM Cloud and Google Cloud and do some sort of centralized management for all of that. Um, which is why I talked about like operators have been huge. Uh, you know, the joke was, you know, they don't do anything at Red Hat SRE without writing an operator first because literally that's how they have to approach customer management is nothing. We can't do anything unless we can automate it and do it for everybody. So there's sometimes feature gap between what can a customer self-manage and what is available through the managed offerings only because we haven't automated it in a way that works well enough to just say, yeah, click these few buttons and it'll work. And you know, sometimes there's some gap in, in building the automation behind rather than just the functionality. Mm. That's one of the weird things with regulated industries using a managed service. There's all sorts of background stuff we've been trying to do to figure out how can we successfully tie into this customer's infrastructure and they're still compliant with whatever regulations they need to meet. And so there's a lot of work around that as well happening in the back. I know it's not directly uh, observability with that, but 
all of it ties in because we have to pull the telemetry data from their infrastructure back to Red Hat so that we can monitor it because we're monitoring. We're the ones monitoring all of the actual node health, all of the actual cluster health is being sent back to Red Hat. So we make sure if any of those are acting up, that's when we start taking action in order to, to fix it. And with the huge diversity in customer workloads, this is kind of the same problem that Charity and Christine were working on at Parse of having people being able to hit your cluster with all kinds of random stuff. Yeah. That's going to break things. Yep, exactly. And there's some of those around that too, like, especially for folks that are used to self-managing, we're talking about the managed product, like, oh, well, do we have access to all these underlying things? I'm like, well, we, we can give you full cluster admin, but like asterisk, like, don't mess with this stuff, right? Like, this is all the things we're managing for it. You're the one that breaks it. Like, all we're going to do is let you know that you broke it, <laughs> um, as opposed to being able to actually undo it and fix it for you, because we don't know we don't know what you've done at that point. We don't want to break other stuff. So it's going to come to the, like, hey, heads up, we lost your nodes. Is that on purpose? Uh, what are you doing? <laughs> as an example, we had folks, and we've turned out we needed this functionality, where we had uh, some customers where every day, like, we just watch these nodes disappear. We're like, what the heck is going on? on. We try to bring them back up, right? As these nodes go down, come to find out they were trying to use it temporarily, right? We want to use this as a test cluster. So we want to shut the cluster down at night because we're not using it and bring it back up. But they were just going in and turning off and deleting nodes. So they were just disappearing from our monitoring, right? We were just losing clusters or losing nodes until we finally called them up and we're like, what is happening? We're like, oh, we're turning them off. We're like, oh, <laughs> please stop <laughs> uh, because it's really messing with us. Like now that we know we can turn off our alerting for it because it's not going to be helpful, but also heads up, we've turned off our alerting for it because you keep turning them off. Uh, so it's kind of that balance. And now we've, we're going through and that was one of the features. I don't remember what our GA for it was, but I know we're, we're trying to, to work on that. Like how can we build that of elastic availability where they can turn on and off their clusters and still get the full managed experience because of that. Yeah, it's definitely been a fun experience for us taking our workload, some of which is stateful yeah. and some of which is transient and moving it onto Kubernetes. And that's been a thing for the past, like only in the past two or three months has Honeycomb really started to embrace that. But prior to that, it was just like, no, these are our machine pools. These are our spot instances. These are our non-spot instances. So, Yeah, and it's definitely, there's the uh, the curve of when you're, you're understanding as a, product developer clashes with like, what is the real world actual usage of this software, right? Like in our mind, we're like, well, we're spinning up whole clusters. No one's going to be turning these on and off all the time and come to find out people like, how can I turn this on and off all the time? It's like, oh, okay, hold on. I guess we have to figure that out. So your day job is very much focused on kind of the practical realities of how to do these things. How do you wind up uh, doing kind of the video and event production stuff that, that you've been doing? I think the the irony is that's probably my as much formal training as I have formal background because I actually went to music school initially out of high school. I went to Berkeley College of Music and I was planning to go into production engineering. That was sort of my trajectory and then life happens. And tech pays really well, turns out, and music doesn't, turns out. Uh, so anyway, it's always something I've had a knack for and really enjoyed. I've done, you know, lots of like live sound or live production and things like that. So yeah, this was one of those uh, started out for as COVID came in and everyone sort of had to learn how to like, oh, I guess I'm going to figure out how streaming works and how all this video production works and, and all of this sort of thing. Knowing folks at a couple different conferences that were going on, uh, you know, the folks over at Deserted Island DevOps, mm -hmm. I participated in that as a speaker and so that was something that kind of got that taste of like how things are working on Twitch, right? Austin has been doing a lot of stuff on Twitch and kind of experimenting with with that platform. And as other conferences rolled around, I was like, you know, I, 
I kind of know what's going on in the background of these things. I think I can, I think I can try it out. The open OBS, open broadcast software is just, it's open source. Like I can download it and try it out. And so it was a matter of being the person that had enough of the background skill of live production in the uh, organizer team of, of DevOps Days Boston that it was like, all right, I'll, I'll just jump in and do it. I will just do it because the, the other options are, are not great. I will care about the quality of production that comes out if we just try to use the inbuilt tools to like hop in or whatever. So let me just do it and make it better. Um, and I just, at a certain point, was like, hey, I can totally do this. Let me just drop everything else I'm doing because I kind of have to build this from the ground up and I'll take over this production aspect of it and it will be much better. And we very much appreciated your volunteer efforts, um, especially for Olifest, which uh, you and I were both organizers of. Yeah, that was great. That was um, that was nice to do as a second one. Having one under the belt and learning a little bit more about it and some of the production was was really nice of doing it with Olifest. We still wanted wound up testing in production a little bit, as we talked about in the opening. But yeah, there's a couple things. Uh, didn't predict, for instance, like. It turns out if you don't give people guidelines on what the video should look like and aspect ratios and that sort of thing, you will get multiple responses. <laughs> like this, the more people you have. So there were some things where I, you know, would crop a video because it looked like there was a bunch of black space, but it turned out they actually used that space later. So I had to do a few things here and there. But I think one of the the common things about whether it's you know incident ops or live production or stage production or whatever is sort of that. That sort of doing it live of like, oh, well, I know how to fix this, so let me just fix it and set it live, right? Let me just fix this and let it go. And it's better to fix things halfway through than just let it play out sometimes. And so uh, there was a lot of that going back and forth and a lot of little things where I know there's at least one moment in Fest where Paul was like, oh, I sure wish we could do screen sharing right now. I'm like, oh, yeah, we can do that. Like, give me 30 seconds. Like, it'll, we'll have it up on the screen. No problem. <laughs> Which of your talks was the favorite from Fest? to the extent that you got to enjoy the talks rather than... Uh, <laughs> it's like, I, I got to think about this because so many of them were uh, me monitoring and making sure everything was working and taking that moment to have a break. The panel of all things is probably the one I paid the most attention to, but I really enjoyed uh, a decent panel discussion. Uh, part of it was almost because it stood out to me as like, this was a really good way to have this conversation with people about observability and these answers that I haven't seen a really well done panel in a long time. So that was kind of nice to see. Panels are tough. Yeah, all of mine are, see, I've got such bad answers because so much of mine was focusing on the production of this. I'm like, I really appreciated watching Ted's, if only because of his microphone afterwards and his Q&A when I was watching the, uh, or listening to the actual noise canceling work, which was the most bizarre. I'd never heard such a stark example of noise canceling functioning uh, live. For the people who didn't catch it live, uh, what happened during Ollie Fest was Ted was taking live Q&A with a jackhammer going in his backyard. It was amazing <laughs> to see. Yeah, it was it was great because uh, it would stop, and all of a sudden you'd have this like you know really decent quality vocals going through, and all of a sudden you'd hear this faint jackhammering, but his vocal quality would cut down. Like it sounded like he's talking through a you know a telephone on the other end, and it was like, oh, it's just done frequency reduction on all these over loud frequencies. That's really interesting that it's happened. So you were doing engineering for a while, and then you switched over to doing DevRel stuff, and now you've switched back. Talk to us about why, like what was, you know, compelling you or impelling you at both steps? Yeah. So in this case, I would hedge it a little bit to say, I feel like I'm sort of in the middle of a pendulum swing rather than all the way back into engineering because it's still very uh, customer focusy and I still do a lot of talks. They just happen to be very targeted as opposed to direct engineering work. What is it that's, you know, compelling you to, to make a change though? Yeah. 
the thing for me was actually the opportunity that was available at Red Hat. So I happened to know some of the folks that were working on this new team that were trying to build this team. And for me, it was the opportunity to go to a traditional infrastructure company like Red Hat, who's very used to doing this big three-year contract motion of sales and start to bring in this new cloud services, managed services opportunity of like, how do we start turning this around and and changing the focus? So there's still a lot of like, I'm trying to think of how to word it. It's why I'm kind of floating around the the words here, but they've always very much been, and they'll say that the enterprise open source company, right? And so the side effect I think of being in that world is starting to even get as a a product company, thinking in that frame of mind of big projects, long-term we have requirements and we're doing stuff long and and they're starting to move towards wanting to think about DevOps transformation. And it is that big shift in motion from the big like enterprise direction where you might think of long-term requirements and all these big projects and it's selling three-year contracts and, and that sort of thing to this more cloud native DevOpsy approach, right? How do we become more agile? How do we target people who want to be able to click a button and start a service? And also, how do you deliver that value sooner rather than over three years and kind of big bang initiatives? Right, exactly. That's the big thing that we're we're trying to work on is how do we help folks realize the value that can be delivered and how do we actually get that spun up? You know, part of the challenge after, you know, selling a big product, like if you have a three-year contract, it's kind of fine to walk away and they'll either figure it out or they won't. Um, but when you're especially doing cloud services, you can't really have someone spin something up and then not use it or not know how to use it because they can just as easily turn it off and walk away from your service just as easy as they started it up. So that's a big shift in mindset that the whole company has to go through. And so it was really interesting to be able to come in with folks who are interested in doing that, interested in making that turn towards how can we provide value for customers? How can we do stuff faster? How can we focus on this cloud native approach as opposed to big on-premise enterprise deals? Um, and that was sort of interesting to me. I, I thought it was interesting to be able to work in that role. Part of it was because I grew up in Connecticut and only just recently in uh, summer of 2019 moved up to Vermont. And so most of the environment I was around dealing with DevOps days in Connecticut was uh, big enterprise companies, right? So Hartford is full of like Aetna and United Healthcare and the center of the insurance world. Exactly. It's little known secret for anyone who's not from the Northeast. Yeah. In fact, it's one of the, the funny things about Harvard is it's a ghost town after hours. Like we do DevOps days and like there's no real nightlife because everybody leaves at like 530 and goes home. So enterprise was very much what I grew up with and everything that was around that space. So I kind of have a, a heart for government and enterprise folks that are doing that, you know, chop wood, carry water, right? And they're trying to do something good and make something good in this environment that's highly structured and regulated and slow to change. Uh, so it's really interesting for me to be in a, a place that can talk to those folks. So you were doing that for a while, and then why decide to swing back to engineering? Yeah, well, that was that was what I was saying. It was this role is focused on those customers, right? Where I was in Devrel, focused on big community groups. That was very much kind of anyone and everyone who could show up. If I'm talking at a conference or having like an Elastic meetup, very rarely am I getting a community of enterprise folks. It's kind of the community of the startups that are around or smaller groups that are there, unless I'm targeted at going into that company. So with Red Hat and working on the OpenShift team, it was focusing on those enterprise groups, right? It's still sort of community, but it's very targeted at these big enterprises. And how can I help these enterprises do that? So it's a, like I said, it's kind of a little bit of engineering for me, but really my main goal was being in that customer success facing role and and that sort of thing. And so it's still being able to help people out and any of the engineering changes and what I'm brushing up on in, in that has been all around 
making sure I can have those conversations, making sure I can offer like useful advice to someone who's an enterprise as opposed to having conversations for a startup or having conversations for folks that are totally greenfield. I'm almost always entering into projects that are already underway, stuff that's, you know, ancient stuff that's very brownfield and trying to figure out how to make those changes. So what kind of engineering do you actually do in your current role? Mine right now is still pretty limited on, it's more around sort of the ideals in getting started with OpenShift in this case. So a lot more of it is how can I, can we build an application delivery pipeline? So I've got some of the functions around that of making sure those are working and adapting it for customers' actual applications. There's not a ton that's direct engineering and building it. It's a lot more putting the parts together inside of a big project like OpenShift that's sort of a, an amalgam of open source projects. Yeah, definitely one of the things that I highlight often is people copy the first working example they find. So you'd better have that first example be correct or else people are copying these broken idioms and paradigms. Yeah, right. That's actually a really good point about it because that's a lot of what we're trying to do is get those things right. You know, how can we get the, how can we get you up and running in the right way so that you're doing that the same way every time? Or in the case of app delivery pipelines, a lot of the question is around I hate saying DevSecOps because I hate all these DevXOps things, but I think we're stuck with the terminology that the, the market throws at us. But there's a lot of focus on like DevSecOps ideas of how can we build some amount of security and observability into our whole delivery pipeline, right? Of making sure our packages are secure. Doing all this thinking about this sort of stuff, like what advice do you have for our customers who, or for users, just for developers in general who are like, where do I start? What is the smallest amount of value that I can get out just to like prove to myself, to my team, to my boss that this is worth investing more time in? Because I get this question all the time and it's difficult for me to synthesize an answer because I, I haven't probably seen as many examples as you. So if you're from a traditional monitoring world where you have your golden signals or whatever, and mm. but you're trying to get more towards the like constant conversation with your code, live in production, you know, the high cardinality, high dimensionality, like just the next generation, the next wave of thinking about tools that is not so infrastructure faced where it's like, is my service up? Is it down? Is it healthy? It's more about you know, what is the experience of each user, you know, end to end. Yeah. But that's a pretty big investment. So like where do they start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things I've mentioned before is, right, there's all the talk about, especially in DevOps, like shift left. So one of the things I've mentioned is you have to shift your perspective. And it's not a good, like, technical answer, but that's sort of the practical thinking answer of it that everything I feel like stems out of, right, is thinking of what is the customer experience and what's the success criteria of this actual application? Because so many are not even thinking of that. So much of it is making sure the architecture is up and that's running the application, and so I think the big first shift is, okay, well, if it's all running, like, what does it mean to be running well, right? What does it mean for your customer to have a good experience? Mm -hmm. And what's your tolerance on that, right? Like, how many times can it fail? And, and I think getting away from the, you know, 100% five nines myths that are out there, right? Because I, I run into that a ton of like, well, what's the availability that we ought to make sure it's up 99 point whatever many percentage of time. Nine 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 percent of the time. Yep. Right. Exactly. And I'm like, well, does it really? Like, what does that actually mean? I'm like, you're talking about like minutes a year. What does this actually mean? <laughs> and do you actually have that tolerance? And I think there's a huge learning curve just shifting that mindset away from perfection into like, what is my error tolerance and what's that sort of thing. Mm. What about feedback cycles? What about kind of the amount of time that it takes to push code through your delivery pipeline? Yeah, that's another big one too. And I think that's where the pipelining comes in in the first place, right? And why that's one of the things that we have have been working on a sort of secure ideal 
pipeline example that we can kind of throw out there is this is our reference architecture for how this should look. For OpenShift, for instance, we adopted these uh, Tekton for our, our pipeline processes. That's kind of the main pipelines product that's there, although it, you know there's all sorts of other stuff because it's open source. But what that can allow folks to do is not only have reusable parts is kind of the goal with it. So we're trying to get folks in the mindset of like, your pipeline should have you know, concrete steps of like, you know, physically move this from here to there. But we also want like the abstract of that as well, right? Like, what does this look like abstractly that can be applied to every single application that you have? Um, so that your build process is no longer custom written for every single application that you use, but you can start just reusing these processes that you did and just plug in new variables. Mm, which kind of gets to that point about developer productivity. If everyone is reinventing their own pipelines, then they're all doing their bespoke things. They're breaking in different ways. Right, right. I mean, you have to do this all over again. It's like, oh, did we get that Jenkins script right this time? Do we copy it from the right places? It's like, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Just plug in the variables that you need, reuse the bits that work every time, and let's use that. Um, and at the same time, you know, we make sure all of the, ideally, the builds and pipelines are all fed back into our, you know, OpenShift interface so that developers can go right to one place and watch their build run as opposed to, you know, I've always been a fan of not having to jump between like, okay, I'm building this. Now I need to open up Jenkins. All right. Now I need to go back and figure out what happened with this. Now I need to go to this other product to figure out what's happening there. Right. The instant that you have to connect switch, change tools, alt tab out, wait five minutes, right? Like that just kills your momentum. Yeah. So absolutely. That's been one thing I always have been like, yeah, you can use these other tools, but I would use the ones that build into the one interface that you're using for everything. That way you can at least have, at least have it so it knows about it, right? You can click the button to bring up the tool as opposed to having to remember, oh, right, where do I have to go to find that out again? As a new person to that team, I've really enjoyed the thought process that went into that, right? Of being able to build an app and have one-click links out to like, hey, let's go check the source code for this thing, or one-click links out to like, hey, what's this actual build step doing? You know, not just what's its status and, and that sort of thing. It's been really nice to have those contexts uh, built in. Right. It's kind of like the ideal that people were supposed to get with having 12-factor apps that very few people actually have achieved in practice, except for you're building it for larger enterprises and they're actually able to do it systematically. Yeah, a lot of it is pushing a lot of that opinion into that process, right? Of, of saying, hey, this is the way we're going to say you should do it. And right, you can take the time to do it some other way, but we want to make the the right way the easy way, right? Like that's the the ideal. Yeah, definitely a lot of similarities with how we've been really opinionated at Honeycomb, where it kind of makes people get good defaults. But on the other hand, you know, it it takes a little bit of adjusting to realize that you know, yes, we probably have a reason for being opinionated about this. We've we've been bitten by a lot of these things and don't want you to be bitten by them too. Yeah, exactly, and it's. Um, coming from a open source backed company who's been very much in the realm of like, we don't have an opinion and you can use whatever you want in order to do this sort of thing. It has been a bit of a shift there in mindset of being like, you know, it's okay to have an opinion about this and tell people there's a right way to do it. Like it is okay to have that and say, Hey, this is how I would do it and how you should do it. Oh, awesome. Thank you very much, Aaron, for joining us. And yeah. people can find you on the internet at crazy. Yeah, it's C-R-A-Y-Z-E-I-G-H. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time. 